0: I would like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 4. Acts, chapter 4, is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read a couple of verses from Acts 4, and then a couple of verses from Acts, chapter 5, uh, as we begin looking at God's Word. So, Acts chapter 4. Now, if you have been around for a while, you know that we are walking, as is our custom, through the book of uh, Acts, and we are seeing Christ's church fulfilling the commission that he gave them to spread the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the rest of the world. And uh, we have been, in the last few weeks, looking at four scenes From one event, it begins in Acts chapter 3. Peter and John go into the temple to pray, and on their way there, they see a man who is lame. They heal him. That's the first scene. In the second scene, Peter delivers this sermon. Uh, In the third scene, uh, they're arrested and brought for trial before the Sanhedrin. In the last scene, the church gathers to pray. We have gone through all four of those, and now we're going to come back and look at a particular verse in this scene, namely verse. 18. After Peter and John have been commanded not to preach by the religious leaders. Look at Acts 4 verse 18. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. Now, flip with me over to Acts chapter 5. Peter and John don't stop like the religious leaders tell them, and they're arrested again. And look what happens in Acts chapter 5, verse 28, during their trial. We have this conversation. Actually, I'm going to read in verse 27, Acts five twenty-seven. "'The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priests. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name.' he said, Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. Now, a couple of weeks ago, when I was reading through Acts chapter 4, verse 18, I paused there at that verse that talks about which is it right for us to obey you or to God, and I just offhand said that we need to come back to this verse, and we're going to unpack it, and we're going to talk about what this verse says, and we're going to talk about authority, and we're going to talk about Obamacare, and all those things. And many of you laughed, which surprised me a little bit. Maybe it's a little out of context, right? I mean, what in the world does Obamacare have to do with the apostles healing someone at the temple other than the fact that now this man no longer needs Obamacare? I mean, what's, what is the relationship? Uh, but this morning, actually, what I want to do is I want to show you how the recent debates over the contraception mandate in the Affordable Care Act are very directly related to this passage, or actually this, in, this passage very clearly informs us about how we should think about the government and uh, authority and how we submit to it. Um, actually, we're going to go beneath these verses a little bit this morning, and I want to talk to you about the foundation that's behind both what the Apostle said in chapter 4 and in chapter 5. And here are some of the questions that we're going to mull over as we think about this um, issue. Um, You you know that we normally walk through books of the Bible passage by passage, chapter by chapter, scene by scene. Uh, Every now and then, though, in the book of Acts, an issue comes up that deserves greater attention. Uh, One week so far, we've talked about the wonder of the ascension and how important that is from Acts chapter 1. And we spent a a week uh, or so, a few weeks ago, talking about signs and wonders from the book of acts and how that how we understand those passages today well today we're going to talk about these verses that are the foundation of of how we think about two key issues authority and submission and and these are some of the questions that we, that we'll think about or that we could ask uh, when can we or when must we disobey the law um If you're driving and and a police officer pulls you over for speeding, is it okay to say to him, tell me, officer, should we obey God or should we obey men? (laughs) Don't do that. Um, Is it okay ever to overthrow the government with an armed rebellion? Uh, We celebrate an armed rebellion every July with fireworks. Hmm. Um, how can you tell that the religious community that you are a part of is a cult and not a church? When should a wife refuse to uh, obey her husband, uh, submit to her husband, follow her husband's leadership, and what does she do if she thinks that her husband is being foolish but not really necessarily sinful? Is it ever okay for a child to defy her parents? honey. <laughs> You must clean this room. Yes, mother, but we must obey God rather than our mothers. How many rules should a church have for its members? Uh, How many rules should a church have for its elders, its Sunday school teachers? Um, If it has any requirements at all for them, and who gets to set those rules, and by what authority do they set those rules? And I'm not going to answer all those questions in detail this morning, but I want to give you a framework for starting to think about them. These are related to those two basic concepts, authority and submission, which, let's be honest, are uncomfortable words, right? Um, There are a lot of people, when you talk about the word authority, immediately what comes to their mind is, well, you shouldn't trust authority. Don't submit to anybody willingly. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I'm going to say this a few times this morning, but today we're trying to think about wisely applying biblical principles to civil disobedience. That's probably not your biggest problem. It's not my biggest problem. My biggest problem is not thinking carefully about civil disobedience. My problem is my own heart attitude towards civil obedience and how I submit to the authorities that God has put over me. Now, what I want to do, though, in answering these questions is I want to to pursue four broad categories. First thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the goodness of authority. We're going to talk about the goodness of authority. Then we're going to talk about the call in the Bible to submit to that authority. And then we're going to think about the corruption of authority. And finally, we're going to talk about the responsibility to defy human authority. Now, on this uh, green sheet here, we're going to look at a lot of different passages, and I've written out some of them on this green sheet of paper. So if you want to follow along, this might be helpful. And also, because we're going to look at longer passages too, I'm going to read them, gives you some page numbers in the Pew Bibles. If you want to follow along uh, that way, you can do that too. If you didn't bring a copy of the, of the Bible with you, or if you don't have a copy of the Bible, you please can feel free to take one from the pews. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word. So if you don't have one, just take the one that's there. We have lots of extras that we fill in, and um, we'll uh, replace gladly the one that you take. Anyway, let's start here by talking about the goodness of authority, the goodness of authority. We believe in the goodness of authority because we believe that human authority is established by God. God Himself delegates authority to human beings. He establishes institutions. This is an expression of God's kindness to us. It is part of His loving provision for us. He did it for our benefit. And what I want to do is I want to talk to you about some authority structures that God has established and how they're beneficial or how they're good. First, I want to think in general, God delegated authority to humanity. He delegated authority to just humans in general. Look at Genesis 1.28 and what it says. Genesis 1.28 says, "...God blessed them, Adam and Eve, our parents in the garden, and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground." God is delegating authority. And in Genesis chapter 2.18, it tells us that He had delegated authority to Adam and Eve to work and to keep the ground, to nurture it, to spread it, to cultivate it, to care for it. God in His goodness has entrusted the care of creation to us for creation's good. You can see this even clearer, I think, in Psalm 8, or it's stated with with more bluntness about the ruling aspect of it in Psalm 8. Look at Psalm 8, verse 3. I'll read it to you, Uh, Psalm 8, this hymn about God's creation majesty. Psalm 8, verse 3 says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, What is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God establishes human authority over creation, and it's part of his good design. Now, in addition to thinking generally about the authority that God has entrusted to human beings, we can think more specifically about three institutions that God has made, uh, that God has instituted, into which he has delegated authority. Those three are the government, the church, and the family. Now, uh, those are the institutions that the Bible speaks about in detail. Human beings have created all kinds of other institutions. We have created museums, and museums are wonderful places. We have made uh, school systems, and school systems are wonderful places. We have made uh, nonprofit organizations like the Red Cross, and how grateful we are for the work that the Red Cross does. The Bible doesn't say anything directly about how to run the Red Cross, a school system, or uh, a museum. But it does speak directly to these three institutions that God has made. And I want to name them, I've identified them for you. Now I want to look in the Bible and show you how good they are and what good purpose they serve. So we're going to start with the government and we're going to turn over to Romans 13. Government made by God, blessed by God, called by God to do good purposes and to help us. Romans 13. Uh, Paul is writing here to the church in Rome, evidently, Romans 13, verse 1. "'Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves.'" For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Now, what good is the government supposed to do? The government is supposed to punish evildoers, protect the public and by doing so, restraining evil. We could find more passages in the Bible that talks about this, but this is, this is good enough. The government exists to punish evildoers, and by, their, by doing that, restrain evil. There was a film that was released last summer uh, called The Purge. It was a horror movie. I did not see it. I'm not mentioning it because I recommend it. Uh, I'm mentioning it because its influence actually extended beyond what it did at the box office. The premise of The Purge is that it was a a, a tale of a future dystopian America where for 24 hours, uh, uh, one 24-hour period every year, there would be no emergency services in the United States and no enforcement of the law. What do you think would happen if for 24 hours you could get away with anything? There'd be no accountability, no, no punishment, no police to arrest you What would happen? Well, the horror aspect of the movie comes up with people doing horrible things. At least the the, the producers of the movie, the writers of this, they, they understand what government is for and what government does. It's to protect people, to restrain evil. Now then, next, there is the authority of the church. The authority of the church. A force for good. And I want to show that to you from a rather strange passage of Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is trying to help the church respond to a member of the congregation who is involved in some sort of immorality. And Paul encourages them and he, he tells them that they are to discipline the man. That is, they are to uh, remove him as a member of the church. This is the most visible, authoritative act that a church can take to remove somebody from membership within the congregation. And look what Paul says about what they are doing. First Corinthians 5, 5. When you are exercising this authority, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. What is the church supposed to do? It's supposed to use its authority, in this case, to uh, remove someone from membership. Why? For the sake of their soul, for their protection, for their good, so that by being confronted by a congregation, they will uh, consider the perilous condition of their soul before God. Now, a little bit more positively here, look at Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Look what it says. Have confidence in your leaders, your translation might say obey, and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Now, where's the goodness here? Elders in a church are given to a church to watch over the flock, to care for them, to benefit with them, to interact with people such that joy is produced. Now, finally here in this, as we think about the goodness of authority, we talk about the authority in the family, the authority in the family. And we're going to flip over to Ephesians chapter 5. If you would look there, this is, of course, the classic passage about authority in a family structure. And Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, begins this way. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now some specifics, verse 22. Wives, submit to your yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, what's the good that a wife is placing herself under by submitting to her husband's authority? That good is clarified in the instructions for husbands in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. When a wife submits to her husband's leadership, she is placing herself under the care of someone authorized by God to lead, to lovingly lead for her good, for her holiness. For her righteousness. This is the goodness of authority. Look down at Ephesians 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Sometimes when we read that passage, I think we read it as if to say, well, children obey their parents, and if they obey their parents, well, then God will bless them and give them a good life and a long life, and that's the way it works. I don't think it's that mechanic or separated. I think what Paul is saying is, as you obey your parents, you'll receive from your godly parents good wisdom that will make your life go better. Things will be good for you if you listen to their wise counsel. Human authority, by God's design, is, is good. It's not for the benefit of those in authority, but it's for the happiness of those under, the, uh, under authority, in submission. When I do premarital counseling, we sit down sometimes and we talk about how this works in a marriage. And, and one of the, the exercises that I, that I give them is I ask them to imagine a scenario where it's time to decide in spring where you're going to go on vacation. The and husband, the husband in this scenario desperately wants to go to the mountains for vacation, but the wife, she really wants to go to the shore. That's where everybody in Lancaster County goes, right? One of those two places. So what are they going to do? Different desires. He wants to go to the mountains. She wants to go to the shore. Well, in this house, if he is a tyrant, they go to the mountains, and they don't need to talk about it at all, right? If he's a wimp, they go to the shore and he complains all the time about how he's not having a good time, right? If, though, he is exercising godly authority, he goes beyond these questions of asking. He asks a different question or another question in addition to where do I want to go. He asks the question, which trip will benefit the well-being of those under our care? Which will be most useful in producing godliness, holiness, blamelessness? Which would be best in accomplishing that goal? Huh. That's not always an easy question to answer, but it's always one that godly leaders ask. Now, notice here that this is delegated authority. It's enmeshed uh, in human beings Uh, ...by God who ordained these institutions. But we should think about one more source of authority... ...that is namely God himself. So God has delegated authority to humanity... ...he's instituted the government, the church, the family... ...but we shouldn't forget at all about the authority of God himself... Um, I didn't read it from Acts, but I want to go back there for just a minute. Do you remember how the early church prayed? I mentioned it a few minutes ago. In Acts chapter 4, verse 24, when they gathered together, they prayed, Sovereign Lord, you are the sovereign Lord. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. God is the sovereign Lord. He made everything, and because He made everything, He owns everything, and because He owns everything, He has authority and control over everything. He is the ultimate authority. That's part of our confession when we say Jesus is Lord. We say He is the Master, He is the sovereign One. Uh, Whatever He ordains is right. This is my Father's world. He, he rules over everything. He is the authoritative one. Now I mention that because I want you to see the difference beque- between these types of authority. There is a crucial difference. Here's the difference. Human authority is limited while God's authority is limitless. Human authority is limited. God's authority is limitless. This is a significant issue, and I just want to illustrate it with with two examples. How does the Bible limit the authority of, of government, and how does the Bible limit the authority in the church? Now, one way that the Bible limits authority of the government is that the government cannot command belief. The government does not have the authority under God to tell you what to believe or what to value, or how or who you worship. Now, this is one of the ways that Christians have disagreed with each other over time, and it's one of the ways that Christianity is different from other religions. Now, in our country, we have historically held to the separation of church and state, which originally meant that the state was not to interfere in the work of the church. The state did not have authority over the church to dictate what the church was to do, how to spend its money, what to believe. And this was placed into our founding documents through the influence of a good Baptist. A man by the name of John Leland. John Leland was a pastor in Massachusetts Uh, during the founding era. He was an ardent ardent abolitionist, uh, anti-slavery man. And he had a correspondence with James Madison over this issue, and his correspondence pressing for the separation of church and state is what led to, in part, the First Amendment being added in the Bill of Rights. See, John Leland was concerned that the United States, uh, like some of the foreign uh, European countries, would have some sort of official church. State churches are bad for the state and they're bad for the church. They corrupt both. Uh, so we disagree with our Anglican friends in Great Britain and Canada and we disagree with our Lutheran friends in Germany and we disagree with our Catholic friends in their claim of the authority over the state And and our convictions differ significantly with Muslims who believe that it's their responsibility to impose uh, Sharia law or Islam by the sword on the peoples that they conquer. See, Jesus himself spoke about this. He said, render to God Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Caesar's authority is limited over us by God. Now, what about the church? What sort of limits are there on the church's authority? The church's authority is delegated to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's fenced by the Bible. And there are things that the the church cannot legitimately command. We cannot speak to you authoritatively. The church cannot speak to one another authoritatively about where you shop, about what sort of clothes you buy and wear what you eat, what music you listen to, who you marry. We don't have the authority under the Bible to force you to go to church. Nowhere in the Bible is there a passage that says, if the meetings time starts and Gary isn't there, go to his house and grab him and bring him to church. That's a ministry some of you would like to have, I know. But it's not an authority that we have. We can't force people to uh, go to church. The government can cut your head off, but the church can't legitimately exercise that level of physical control over you. Jonathan Lehman, in fact, he wants us, he's thought about this a lot, and I've learned much from him. He wants us to recognize the difference in the church between the authority of command and the authority of counsel. There's a difference. The government has authority to command. It can command you to do certain things, and you're obligated under God to obey. But the church has the authority of counsel. Under God's word, we speak to one another about what God requires, and we call one another to obey. Now, why is it? Why do we in the church emphasize the authority of counsel and not the authority of command? I think it's wrapped up in the nature of the gospel that we believe. Follow me here for a minute. We believe that all external behavior, everything you do with your hands and your eyes and your tongue originates in your heart. And and true change takes place from the inside out, not from the outside in. Our doctrinal statement, it talks about how the fact that we are all sinners by nature and by choice. is talking to us about our heart condition, our heart corruption, our alienation from God with which we were born. It does not naturally submit to God's authority. I don't obey God with my hands because my heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Now, how does someone truly change? Not from the outside in. Not from external obedience in, but from the inside out. I I love this quote from Warren Rearsby. I haven't said it in a long time. I thought of it this week. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and transfers the image of the Son of God onto the child of God. This is how change takes place. The Spirit of God takes God's Word and He transfers upon us the image of His Son of Jesus Christ on us. Now, let me illustrate this here. This inside-out work can be slow and frustrating and hard to see. Uh, We're tempted. We're tempted to work from the outside in. Let me uh, uh, illustrate this here. Which is easier? Which would be easier for a church to do? For me to stand up here and say... Christians should not listen to, um, I could fill the blank in, right? Christians should not listen to music by Justin Bieber, okay? Illustrative purposes, all right? So Christians should not listen to Justin Bieber music. And I could preach a three-point sermon with a poem about how Justin Bieber's music is evil. And you should not listen to it. And good Christians don't listen to Justin Bieber. Now, what's easy about that command is that it's very narrow. It's very easy to obey. All you need to do is throw away all your Justin Bieber (laughs) 8-tracks, CDs. You just throw away all your Justin Bieber music. And um, it's easy to obey. It's easy to hold other people accountable. I just need to look through your playlist or look in, in your, your house, do you have any Justin Bieber music? Right? I can hold you accountable very easily. And it's easy if you want to be a hypocrite, right? You just go listen to Justin Bieber behind the barn and scowl at all of us how stupid we are that we don't listen to the wonderful Justin Bieber, right? Now, compare that with the challenge of the Bible's call toward patience. The Bible calls us brothers and sisters, to be patient people. And we're called to be patient people in a host of situations. You're called to be a patient driver. You're called to be patient when you're going down the stairs to pick up your children from children's church. And we have a a, a narrow set of stairs, and a lot of people are trying to get down. You're called to be patient. You're called to be patient when you're teaching that children's class and you're waiting for their parents to come you're called to be patient when you're standing outside of your bathroom door in the morning and you need to leave for 10 and 10 minutes for work or you're going to be late and someone's in there and they should know not to be in there when you're supposed to be in there you're called to be patient there This it's broad isn't it and it's hard to hold somebody accountable for this being patient I i can't just check your phone to see if you're being a patient person It's hard to fake being a patient person. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. This is inside-out work. We appeal to people through God's Word, uh, dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit, to produce this in people. You see why we have the authority of counsel and not the authority of command? It's in keeping with God's work of how He transforms us how he changes us human authority is limited God's authority is limitless God is a totalitarian God claims absolute authority in your life he wants to dictate to you he has the authority and the right to dictate to you everything that you do what you love what you pursue what you wear what you buy how you relate to other people, what you value. Human authority is limited. God's authority is limitless. Don't confuse the two. Now, that's the goodness of authority here, and we're going to move a little bit quickly through the, more quickly through the rest of them. Let's think, secondly, at the call to submit to authority, the call to submit to authority. I read in those passages that I read when it was talking about the establishment of authority, there's the passages about submission, right? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, Ephesians 5.21. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, Ephesians 6.1. Submit yourselves to the governing authorities, Romans 13.1. There are these commands about submission, and they're already there in the text. God's expectation for you is that you actually obey and welcome the good authority that God himself establishes. I haven't decided if this is wise or effective, and I don't know that I've done it enough to actually have my children even notice this, but um, I've been trying, I've decided that I'm going to try to, to inculcate in my children a proper response to my authority. Here's here's my strategy. You can correct me later. Uh, so it's it's uh, schools in session, right? So um, bedtime is is a little bit more important than during the summer. So um, I go into rooms and I say, okay, now turn off the light and go to sleep. And often the response I get is, but dad, I only have a little bit more in this chapter to read. Can I play with my Legos just a few more minutes? Why do I have to go to bed? I promise I'll sleep later tomorrow morning. Now at that point in time, when I hear these excuses, I find myself responding as if I am them speaking to me. What I should be hearing from them, right? Oh, Father, <laughs> you are so wise and so caring. You looked at the clock and you interrupted what you were doing to come up here and kiss me goodnight and to make sure that I am getting a proper amount of rest. It is so good for me. To, it's so good for me to be in a home where I am loved and cared for. Where someone watches over me and 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 makes rules. Thank you. Oh Father, thank you. I've been trying it, it has not worked yet, this uh parenting technique. Oh, thank you, Elder Ed, that you have come and spoken to me about my absence from church. You you came and talked and you cared about my soul enough to come and interrupt your schedule and confront me with courage and kindness. And I'm really fortunate to be part of a church that looks for wandering sheep like you've done for me. How do you submit to a government? You pay your taxes, right? You obey the law. How do you submit to your your parents? You obey them. You respect them. How do you submit to a church? Has lots of different shades, right? Manifests itself in in how you receive counsel from someone else. It manifests how you react when someone corrects how you serve. Or how you respond when you read the ministry requirements. If you're going to participate in this ministry, you must do this, 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 and this. And if you look at it and say, Well, serving Jesus isn't worth following all these rules. What do you do when it's time to sing a new song? We're going to learn a new song together. Or participate in some new initiative. It might be significant, uh, as significant your submission to the church is is how you think about where you live. What house you buy and where it is. Is Is this house that I'm considering on your list? You have lists, right? It's got to have a number of bathrooms and bedrooms and it's got to be in a school district and is on your list, it has to be in a place that will enhance my participation in the church and my encouragement of those who are my fellow followers of Christ. See, submission is 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 a Christian virtue because submission was so central to the Lord Jesus himself. I want to show you, uh, let's look at this, let's remind one another of this from this very familiar passage in the book of Philippians, shall we? Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, verse 5. Verses that you you all know, um, we've read a number of times, but look what it says here, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. This is a poetic description of the payment that the Lord Jesus made that was required because of our unsubmission, our disobedience. We're sinners by nature and by choice and our alienation from God extends all the way through us from what we do to what we love and our guilt means that we deserve God's righteous wrath. But Jesus became our substitute. On the cross, he paid our penalty. Now, why did Jesus die on the cross? The Bible provides a couple different answers for that. Jesus died on the cross because he loved us. He offered Himself as our substitute for the sake of love. Why did Jesus die on the cross? For the sake of justice. Because how in the world can a holy God forgive unholy people only if payment is made for that sin? He did it, though, too, Philippians 2 says, for the sake of obedience because His Father asked Him to and He submitted Himself unto His Father in light of this grand act of submission by our Lord, why do we struggle so much with submission? Why is it so hard for you? If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, the Bible speaks very plainly about God's holy standards. We all fall short of God's holy standards and and this guilt this guilt that comes because we are God's lawbreakers. We deserve the sentence of death by God, who is the great judge, but in love He has rescued us, He has paid the penalty we deserve because of His Son, and God forgives and He gives life to all who turn to Him and trust in Him. So Jesus Christ is the Savior to whom you must turn and in whom you must trust for forgiveness. And this story, when, when, it, when you really grasp its significance, it begins to change you. He makes our submission possible. Why? Because the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and transfers the image of the Son of God on the child of God. Now let's quickly here talk about the corruption of authority, right? The corruption of authority. Sin corrupts not just human beings, but human institutions. Governments and churches and families, they all get off track. Uh, this is probably so. I don't need to prove this to you, do I? You've seen this, haven't you? This is one of the reasons that you struggle with submission. Or this is sometimes the convenient excuse to a- avoid the issue of submission, right? It's hard to pay taxes. Isn't it hard to pay taxes? Uh, when you read in the newspaper an article about how the government spent $130 on a hammer, you know? Couldn't we just send them the hammer itself? It'd be cheaper for all of us, right? What's interesting in the Bible is that the Bible never, though, uses the corruption of authority as an excuse for us to have to, to avoid submitting to it. Right In Romans chapter 13, Nero was the emperor, and Paul does not write to the church in Rome, hey, you know what? You've got a real scoundrel on the throne there. So just for a while, just ignore him, and don't worry about following uh, his government. And maybe, well, maybe somebody better will come along, but y- you just ignore that for now. Or, ha, huh, Paul doesn't write. In fact, he does the opposite, doesn't he? He doesn't say to, to women, you know, if your husband, if he, well, if he's not a Christian, if he's not wise... Just forget about the whole submission thing um, don 't worry about it because it 's just no good. Just forget about it. the bible doesn 't say that at all, does it In fact, just the opposite it talks about wives who, by their gentle and gracious and beautiful spirit, uh, provide a living testimony to their husbands of the glory of Jesus Christ in fact um there, there's nowhere in the Bible where it, it, it talks about huh, erring institutional authority provides us with great challenges, but it doesn't provide us with substitute submission excuses. I know some women who are, are desperate for for their husbands to lead well, and they 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 uh, long for it, and they look for it, they they they, they almost seem like little children running around catching snowflakes on their tongues, looking for submission, looking for their husband to to lead in good and godly ways so that they might follow. It's the attitude that the Bible commends to us even in the midst of corrupt authority. And yet, we have this final thing that we must talk about here, the responsibility to defy human authority. Again, this is probably not your problem. Your biggest problem, my biggest problem, is uh, submitting to the authorities that are, are that there are. But there are times when we must, for the sake of obedience to God, defy authority. Which is better, Paul? Uh, Peter said, to obey God or to obey human beings? Now let me enumerate at least two specific instances where you have to defy human authority. You must defy human authority when human authority conflicts with God's commands. When it conflicts with God's commands. This is what happened here in Acts chapter 4, isn't it? The passage we've been looking at. The, The government leaders told Peter and John not to preach the gospel. Stop speaking about Jesus. And they said, we must obey God. Now, they're not free from submitting to the authorities. What happens is that they endure the arrest, the imprisonment, the punishment that comes, but they cannot stop obeying God. They must do what God commands. A wife must not follow her husband into sin. He invites you or encourages you into some sort of sinful behavior. Submission does not require you to join him. We defy human authority when it conflicts God's commands. Now, secondly, we defy human authority for the sake of conscience. For the sake of conscience. This is related to God's commands. Uh, It's not identical. Your conscience, Andy Nassali says, your conscience is the consciousness that you have of your beliefs about right and wrong. Every human being, even though we are sinful and fallen, have within us, planted by God, an understanding of right and wrong. It itself is not always trustworthy, but there it is. You have this as part of who you are, this understanding of right and wrong. And your conscience is the part of you that speaks to you about what's right and wrong. It testifies to what you believe to be right and wrong and God holds you accountable to submit to your conscience, even in the face of commands of human authority. Do you remember what Martin Luther said? Martin Luther was was ordered to denounce his teachings about justification by faith, and Martin Luther said, to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. And we have these terms that we use, the liberty of conscience or the freedom of conscience. And this is what's under consideration when we think about the Affordable Care Act. And the Affordable Care Act mandates that employers who offer health insurance to their employees have to offer FDA-approved forms of contraception. There are 20 currently of them. And uh, in the case of Hobby Lobby, they objected to providing four of the 20 different forms of contraception. According to the convictions of the owners of Hobby Lobby, these forms of contraception are not, uh, um, they don't inhibit uh, conception, rather they uh, are abortifacients. They inhibit pregnancy by producing or inducing abortion. Now, I've heard all kinds of arguments about this, and some people have said that the the owners of Hobby Lobby are using the wrong definition of abortion. That's not true and it's irrelevant. They've said that the drugs don't really cause abortion or only a minority of doctors actually believe that they do. Again, the number of those who object is irrelevant. Or it could be, as the Obama administration argues, that unless all Christians agree about this, then there's no cause for any sort of conscious provision. And what they forget is that these freedoms are individual freedoms, not group freedoms. Now, because of the the conscience concerns of the the Green family, who owns Hobby Lobby and the owners of Conestoga Wood and, and many, many other organizations... Uh, they sued. This is a wonderful provision in our government. can't believe I just said that. They sued, and it's great. <laughs> no. Uh, um, this, this, is, well, this is a submissive way to protest. So this is a way in the law in which you can express submissively your objection to something that the government has done. Now, they won their case in the Supreme Court. If they had lost, what should they have done? We must obey God rather than human beings. They should have paid the penalties that were theirs. They should have borne the costs. They should have suffered the consequences. No human authority has the right to force you to disobey your conscience. No church, no government agency, no spouse. And here's where parents tread carefully carefully. Very careful. I remember one time when I was in high school, uh, there was a wedding going on at church. Uh, the pastor was going to marry this woman and her, her fiancé. And the, the circumstances in which they were getting married just did not sit well with me. I didn't think that it was a biblically justifiable relationship. I was 15 years old. Um, I was in the minority in my church for believing that. Um, my parents went to the wedding very wisely, I think, did not force me to go and participate in it for the sake of conscience. We are more responsible to God than to any human authority. Authority is a good thing. God loves us. He delegates authorities to institutions of his own making, but they're not perfect. Far from it. And so at times we say to them, no. But we do it slowly, we do it carefully, we do it respectfully, and thus, by doing so, we honor God who is the ruler of us all. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we confess to you as we think about these um, controversial and difficult issues. Uh, Father, we have been been thinking this morning about um, our government and, and the leaders that, that that um, sit in office in our country. Uh, Pastor Scott prayed, prayed for them, and, and we would do so too. Lord, our, our great desire is that they might act wisely and graciously, carefully, soberly, uh, and, and that they would fulfill their calling under you to restrain evil and protect um, citizens. Lord, uh, even as we think about them, though, and their uh, ruling authority, we we recognize and acknowledge that you are the authority of us all, you are the great God, and we joyfully say we obey you, we we must, we're called to obey you. Lord, there's so many things that we can pray about even as we, we try to think about how this these truths might speak to us, our, our elders in our church who exercise authority next week, in the, the church at large as we meet to vote and discuss issues, uh, parents and husbands in their homes as they seek to exercise godly authority. Lord, would you be at work in our church so that our authority would be so attractive that people would see the goodness of it and, and rejoice? we'll do that as you work in us and through us by your spirit and according to your word. Help us, Father, not to be um, foolish rebels, but rather those who submit ourselves to you first uh, and and thus to, to the plans that you have made. Help us, Lord, to walk wisely in this world. You are good as we sojourn and as we are pilgrims. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.